And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I am Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club, where this week we've got a very, very special episode because we are interviewing our first author. Lisa, would you introduce yourself, please? Yes. Hi, I'm Lisa Bordetsky-Williams, and I'm so happy to be here. Can you tell us just a little bit about Forget Russia, which is the book that we're talking about today, uh, as well as a little bit of your background? Sure, sure, absolutely. I'll just start with myself. I'm a lifelong New Yorker. There are not that many of us. I grew up in Queens. There are some mentions of Queens in my book. And I did live in Moscow in 1980 for four months as a college student. And it was an experience that changed my life. And it becomes actually the inspiration for my novel, Forget Russia, which is based on family history of three generations of Russian Jews journeying back and forth from the Soviet Union and Russia in search of a home and and always finding something else and always having their self-identity transformed through this journey. But my big journey was 1980. And after college, I've been living in New York ever since, if you can believe that I am a true New Yorker. I am also a professor of literature at Ramapo College of New Jersey. It's a public four-year college and wonderful school. I teach creative writing and freshman composition and all sorts of literature classes, poetry, Toni Morrison, Virginia Woolf, and modernism and just a you know wonderful array. You didn't leave during the COVID epidemic. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I was here and here with all the other New Yorkers and the the rest of the country struggling through this time. And I have to say, for me, I just felt so lucky. I got into walking as a way of kind of dealing with COVID and started walking about four miles a day and met all my friends walking. So I didn't, I wasn't too isolated. We would put on our masks and walk for four miles. That's awesome. I think COVID's made me love New York even more in many ways. So appreciate this place. And yes, and I'm very excited to be here to talk about Forget Russia. I worked on it for over 20 years. And as I said, it is based on family history. I think it's an immigrant, it's an immigrant story. I think what's unusual about my story is that one based on my great grandmother, who unfortunately lost her life in a pogrom during the civil war between the Bolsheviks and the white and Ukrainian armies. It was a very unstable place in the Ukraine, 1918 to 1921. And the Bolsheviks temporarily lost control of Ukraine during the civil war. And there was a lot of infighting between the uh, other armies trying to kick the Bolsheviks out. And when finally the Bolsheviks got control of the Ukraine, the defeated armies, the white armies, the different Ukrainian nationalist armies, they went into these little shtetls and really pillaged, murdered many, many people. And my poor great-grandmother was was part of that. And that made my grandmother come over to the United States. 
having lost her mother and her father had already deserted her and her mother years, years before he sent for her. She came over here in 1921, 16 years old, having lost her mother in such a tragic way and found out her father was remarried, two stepchildren, half, you know, half sister and brother, and just not wanted by the new stepmother. So she was a big inspiration, my own grandmother and her courageous life. And then believe it or not, I think this is the most unusual part of my book. 1931, my grandmother and my grandfather, who was many years older than her, journey all the way back to the Soviet Union with my mother and my aunt, ages five and three, to build the revolution as the depression here. And they bring the family all the way back. And it was hard here. It was hard there. They stayed nine months and then they they came back. And if they had stayed there in, you know, too much longer, ni- uh, 1936 to 1938 is the height of the purges. They would have lost their lives for sure in World War II in Leningrad. And then I, I went to the Soviet Union in 1980. I met the Soviet Jews who were trying to get out of there. Um, they changed my life. I wanted to somehow recreate them and what what Moscow, you know, and my experience there was like, and what that journey was like for me and how it changed my entire life and, and gave direction to my life. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. I mean, I don't know a ton about Soviet history, but that's unbelievable to me for so many reasons, the going back and also just being in the Soviet Union during the 80s. But just for listeners sake, so people know, Forget Russia tells the story of two women, one during the 1980s and one during the that earlier time period that kind of starts in the early 1900s and then goes to the 1930s. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Two women who are a part of the same family. And it sounds like Sarah's journey, at least, is very, very influenced by your grandmother, your grandmother's experience. Yes, you know, absolutely. I was very close to my grandmother and she wasn't someone who spoke a lot. I mean, she, to me, she had a lot of magic of the old world. And I didn't find out about her mother being raped and murdered until I was 22 years old. And I think the book also explores all these kind of secrets. I was really freaked out when I found that out. I couldn't even believe it. It was about six months before I went to the Soviet Union. And I, it made me really think about where was she and what was she doing? And she did suffer from depression, but who wouldn't? And it also looks at inherited trauma. You know, how does any hate crime, we have so many hate crimes going on in our country now. And I want my book to be a statement against all hate crimes, period. You know, and how does it affect the subsequent generations? And the other thing is, why do people respond so differently to trauma? My grandfather, who in the book, he's based he's Leon, but my grandfather's real name was Boris, or he was called Barney. But Leon in the book, he also, he came to the United States before the revolution, much earlier in 1909. And he also had a hate crime in his family. His father was robbed and murdered, but it didn't scar him the way it scarred Sarah. And I think that the book asked the question, you know, why do people respond so differently to to, to trauma and how does trauma influence the generations that come afterwards. 
You've mentioned there are a lot of the themes that I really picked up throughout the book and that I think that we're going to dive into a little bit later. But I guess just as a, a starting point, knowing that this novel was so influenced by your own family history, I was wondering what your research process was like as you were creating the novel, how you sort of differentiated from your family history, what holes you needed to fill in, and kind of how that was potentially a, a little bit of a different process for you, knowing that it had such a, a personal basis when you were starting out. Sure. Great question. I think because it was so personal to me, I was so fascinated. And the book started out a long time ago, more as a record of my experiences in 1980. Because in a sense, I met the grandchildren of the Bolsheviks, that all the people I met, their their grandparents, many of them, you know, been Bolshevik leaders, they'd, they'd all been murdered or sent to the different labor camps. But then it really changed over time. And I really became interested in these, the three generations, the generation of, you know, the, the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter of, you know, the granddaughter. And I did a lot of research in about the Ukraine and the civil war and just what the shtetls were like, what is a, you know, a pogrom is an act of violence. A, a ma- it's like a massacre, but what, you know, I, I I just read everything I could and research what was really going on. And I never knew how unstable just the whole region was during, you know, the time when during the Civil War, 1918 and 1921, when all these other factions were trying to you know, kick the Bolsheviks out. And there were times when they period of time they did kick them out. And it's just very, very unstable. So, you know, I, I read novels. I, I read just as much history as I could. But what was really incredible was 1931 going back. And I discovered through my research that in 1931, 10,000 Americans went back to the Soviet Union. It was terrible here. Right? It's the height of the depression. And even uh, the, the five-year plan was like a which was a bestseller in the United States in 1931. It was so hard here. And you know, the, the Communist Party dailies and the Jewish Yiddish dailies, they were saying it's amazing there. There's jobs for everybody and it's really fabulous. And many, many went back and, you know, many Russian Jews who came back. My grandfather radicalized when he was here and he really longed to go back. And maybe everyone always longs to go back. And it's the first socialist revolution. There was this sense of, this, you know, Jews were allowed to live in the cities. They weren't under the czar. So they go back and yes, life was extremely difficult. You know, it was difficult compared to even the United States. Soviet and Russian people were used to difficulty that they probably would have lived in a a communal apartment with 20 families, one bathroom. But I think initially the Americans were so welcomed. And I think if someone was young, it was exciting. There were clubs and there were things to do. And, you know, you felt like you were sort of, part of this just this amazing new society of equality being built but things really changed you know in 1936 when the purges which was when stalin just started just cleaning out you know anyone who had come back really all the original bolsheviks just one by one he's like killing them arresting them exiling them and it really really changes there was even a baseball team I found through my research, it was amazing that the Americans were teaching the Soviets, you know, how how to teaching them about baseball. Ford Motor had a a plant 
in the Soviet Union. So there were many people. I researched one gentleman, Mr. Robinson, a Black American who wanted to just escape American racism. And he would actually make more money. He was working at Ford in Detroit, but he'd make more money in the Soviet Union. And he goes there and he actually gets elected to some leadership position in the factory, which he didn't even ask for. And the United States revokes his citizenship because of that. And he can't get back for 50 years. There are a lot of people really stuck there for a long time that the Soviet Union closed up. So it was very personal doing the research, but it was also really fascinating because the more I did the research, the more I could imagine what their lives were like and who they were. And so it was actually really exciting. It was probably the most fun research I've ever done in my life. I love to hear that. I'm in my day job as I'm the curator for a historical museum. So it sounds like you really sort of dug into a lot of what I deal with on the day to day basis. Something that I really appreciated about the novel is that I feel like it really subverted historical myth that I think is common in the US about the fact that immigration is sort of one way and that the US is kind of this end all be all spot. But in actuality, Forget Russia deals so much with as you were saying, with this idea of wanting to return home, where is the best place? Where is the grass greener on the other side? Where is it not? And I love that it was so based not just in your family's personal history, that theme, but just also in other historical stories that you found as well. So thank you so much for kind of including that narrative. I really personally appreciated it in the novel. Oh, great. Great. I I did find it so fascinating. And I I feel like that it's really, I realized through writing this book that I think, you know, everyone, whether you've left your home, you know, three generations back, two generations back, or 10 years ago, longs for that home. Warsan Shire, an amazing British poet, says, no one leaves home unless home is the mouth of a shark. And I think that's so, you know, she writes so much about refugees. So I think that's so true. And yet we long, you know, one always longs to go back to that place of origin. And I really wanted to get at that. I have a question that I don't think is scripted, but so Anna really deals with that, really deals with putting her, her history together and her life story. And I guess too, as a young American whose family has been here for a pretty long time, I think, and who does not have, I live in Queens too. So like, you know, everywhere I get asked all the time, where are you from? From other white people. And I'm like, uh, you know, <laughs> but who has no defined origin and story. That was something that was really striking to me, this desire and this need to go back to her homeland and piece together what had happened to her family. Because it was something I could kind of relate to, but had no, no strings to follow, even if I wanted to, you know? Mm, I think that's really, really interesting, Harmony. You know, Toni Morrison, who's been a tremendous, I mean, inspiration to me, and she's our, you know, it was a tremendous loss when she passed away, but just one of our greatest, greatest novelists. She talks a lot about the ancestor, and she says that it's so important to be rooted in one's ancestors. So in a sense, Harmony, I would say, even if it feels way back, trying to tug out who are those ancestors. You know, I believe that the ancestors, even though my ancestors, their stories were quite tragic, I feel like in trying to imagine their lives and trying to even imagine my great-grandmother who, you know, this a very short and tragic life, I still feel she's guiding me in some way. And 
I felt like Toni Morrison had such a profound thing to say that in somehow uncovering wherever, how many generations back or whatever it is, three generations start your ancestors, I would say, but whatever those lives are, you know, and whatever that lineage is, they're there, they're guiding you. They're, they're the core of your identity. And I feel like, you know, for me, I guess it just had to do with, yeah, this very strong connection with my grandmother. And in some odd way, I just never thought I belonged here. It almost seemed like I needed to go to the Soviet Union and come back. I needed to go there and come back to feel like, okay, I'm here now. I know that sounds strange and I don't really know how I can express that. But in many ways, I felt when I went there that I just met people that I had been searching for my whole life and I didn't even know it. I feel like that relates a lot to sort of how the novel opens. You know, it opens with this idea of having a Russian soul and one that, at least for Anna, is kind of incompatible with her current life at UConn. Go Huskies. But I was I was wondering sort of what having a Russian soul meant to you. And it sounds like it's it's related to this journey, especially that Anna takes in the novel of finding identity with in the, the the culture she was raised in and the country she was raised in, but then also sort of dealing with that ancestry and dealing with that heritage and trying to come out with a better understanding of how all of these things interplay together. Good. I think that's a great question. I think Anna definitely feels like an outsider in as a young woman in 1980. And I'm, I'm sure, you know, you probably feel like an outsider in, you know, 2021. And you know, Virginia Woolf says, actually, it's better to be an outsider than an insider, considering who's on the inside, which has been a great, you know, a solace for me. <laughs> but to your question, it is true. Uh, Anna's, t- her mother says, your problem is you have a Russian soul. And to me that, I remember when I, uh, before I went, my Russian teachers, or but it is based on my experience there, though it is a novel. So I can just say, my Russian teacher said to me, you know, when you get there, they're going to ask you questions like, what would you live for? What would you die for? You know, and, you know, what, what when you say who you love to read, it's it's about your soul. You know, it's like, are you a, you know, if you if you love Tolstoy, then you have, you know, it, it reveals something. It, it's just this kind of depth. And, you know, one of the things, there aren't that many funny moments in, in, in the novel. I wish there were more. But I think one very amusing thing in the novel is that, you know, Yosef asked Anna, do Americans talk about anything other than business? And, you know, that kind of, you know, sense that Americans are really shallow and materialistic and that they, and, you know, he's someone who, you know, can't leave and feels very, very oppressed there. And yet when he thinks of America, he thinks of these just shallow business people talking about money and business that we don't like. And I remember saying that to one of my students, like was you're dealing with some Russian poetry. And then she was like, well, I think he's right. You know, <laughs> kind of has a point there. So that kind of sense of, you know, what would you live for? What would you die for? You know, and you feel like people just don't they want to know who you are in your insides. You know, that's the Russian soul. And the, the great writers are all part of the Russian soul. You know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and Pasternak and Akhmatova and Svetayeva and, you know, all of these, you know, and I would say contemporary Litskaya, you know, they're all part of this intensity that, you know, I kind of longed for. I hope that, that that's a good answer. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that's a great answer. I'm trying to find a good question to ask to to help to help go off of that point because you brought up a lot of really great points. I guess okay, I'm gonna go off script again. Maggie's gonna get mad. 
but (laughs) this happens every time. So in terms of Leon, while we're talking about this idea of American sensibilities versus Russian, I found myself really, really empathizing with him throughout the book, especially being in 2021, but also having not read a lot of Russian literature and not knowing a lot about Russian history, this idea of building a new society and having that dream to cling on to. And I wonder if when you were there or when you were writing the book, how you ended up viewing his story or that that desire to go back and and build something new differently. You know, not just find your soul, but this idea that we are building a new society and we are pledging ourselves to this and we're going to do whatever it takes to make it happen. Great, great, great question. I do want to say one one thing that I just want to say about my book is that you can learn so much history from just reading the book. So anyone, you know, who's really interested in finding out more about Russian history, you know, I I really love the movie 10 Days That Shook the World and I've also read the book and there's that excitement, this incredible excitement about the Russian Revolution. It's the first socialist revolution and just that belief that, you know, I mean, life under the czar was horrible. I mean, it was really horrible. It it was just, and being for a Jewish person, it was just not livable. They weren't even, they were kept in a, they had to live in a certain area, the Pale, which is around the Ukraine, couldn't live in the cities, but it was just really bad. And then to think of this belief that everyone's going to be equal and we're going to build this new society. It was so exciting. And I love what you're saying about Leon because, you know, Leon is 17 years older than Sarah. So he's come here much earlier. He's a master carpenter. He's, you know, done union work and he's, and it's the 1931 depression. He's like, I'm going back. And he also has a depressed wife, which he finds very difficult to handle. And he's like, it'll be better for her there. I want this dream for my children. But one of the things that I wanted to capture was, you know, what Stalin did when he just crushed those hopes. And I wanted to, the story has a love story. Every, I think every story set in Russia must have a love story somehow. And I felt like, you know, Anna falls in love with Yosef and he, his uncle was a Bolshevik, her great uncle was a Bolshevik mayor of a town. And he also had these incredible beliefs of an excitement in Stalin has him shot. And, you know, all these people one by one, they're killed, they're exiled. And the dream, he just, he's terrorized the entire country. So, you know, I would say, you know, Anna, and I would say based, you know, on my own experience as well. I mean, I just, we just grew up in such an anti-Soviet. It's very different now, but Animal Farm in 1984. I mean, I love 1984, but, you know, just, I was reading Animal Farm in, in, in elementary school. I didn't realize, you know, that it was an anti-Soviet book, but they kind of threw it in. And so when, when Anna went there, she's like, oh, I can't take it. It's so anti-Soviet, you know, and I'm sick of it. And sick of all this anti-Soviet rhetoric, you know, and slowly as she's there and sees the stories of these people and she realizes that Stalin did an incredible job of terrorizing the entire country. And I don't think we should ever give up on that dream for equality, but look who's, look who's heading 
up Russia right now. I mean, he is the former head of the KGB, you know, and, uh, look what he's, he's, you know, thrown the, the lead dissident Navalny's, you know, you know, trying to kill the man just for disagreeing with him. If we've come so far away, uh, it was, I was very, it didn't hit me, but slowly and it slowly hits Anna, you know, just how much Stalin terrorized that country and the sadness. And that is also, I feel like part of the Russian soul is this deep sense of tragedy because the reality is it's a, it is a very, it has a tremendous tragedy. And maybe because of that tremendous tragedy, that's why the greatest writers have come out of there because maybe they just understand kind of that depth of, of tragedy, whether it was under the czars or, you know, and that doesn't take away from the excitement of that revolution and the hope and the dreams, but it, moved far away. I mean, Stalin really moved the needle on that one. And it was sad. It was sad for me to discover how all those leaders of the people I met, their their grandparents had basically been gotten rid of. So I think, you know, related to that, this novel in many ways navigates a, a lot of trauma, both trauma that our characters are experiencing as individuals, you know, intergenerational trauma. And I guess to zoom out a little bit, I was wondering how you as an author dealt with writing about that trauma and how you sort of balance writing about it sensitively, but also telling the truth about what happened. And I was just a little curious about your approach to writing this very, very important topic, but also one that's really, really dark and heavy. Great. That's a great question. It's probably part of the reason why it took me so long to write the book. I, I literally, I worked on this book for, you know, 15, 20 years. I also teach full time, but it was a very long process. And I felt like I really wanted to capture the kind of generational trauma and how, how it runs through the generations and each generation you know, is dealing with it. And I feel like in some ways, I don't know how to say this. I think I've learned from Virginia Woolf, though she had a lot of trouble expressing her own experience with trauma. And maybe if she had done it, you know, was able to confront it more in writing, she might've felt, I'm sure it would have been better for her psychologically. But sometimes I didn't want to just, I wanted to do it more subtly, even though, I mean, I write very brutally about the rape and murder of Zlata. There's no way around it. But I, I was really interested in the reverberations of her. So, and I wanted to imagine her and all everything that led up to it. The soldiers, you know, that come by traveling through the Ukraine and how Anna is trying to, maybe that's why she has to go back to the Soviet Union and go back to Russia. She's trying to work through her own sense of this and to get beyond it. And I think the journey helps her and her own experience with trauma. Again, I, I didn't want to make the whole book about that, but I wanted to show how these experiences make people, make young women vulnerable. And, you know, what is that vulnerability that people seize on and that our society is always so ready to blame young women for. And I, I felt that was really hard, but I felt that was the truth that I wanted to get at. And I'm referring to a portion of the book. It's a small part where Anna experiences a date rape. And I felt 
I wrote that many, many, many different ways. And I felt it was important to show this happens to young women all the time. And it's, it's difficult to write about and it's difficult to talk about it. And yet it must be done. So that was my intention. I really like that you talked a little bit about the mirroring ways that trauma was included. And I think that it's interesting how Sarah and Anna or Anna handle their their trauma slightly differently. But I did notice that you were you were giving those threads because Anna deals with the date rape as well as trauma from her stepfather, I think, kissing her non-consensually. And that isn't talked a lot about in the book. But Sarah's experiences are different because it has to do with death and violence. And she reacts to them, it seems, kind of differently. And so I guess when you were when you were processing those two characters, what were some of the choices that you made? Because you talked earlier about how pe- different people deal with trauma differently. Leon doesn't get as quite, quite as depressed as Sarah does. So like, what were the motivations behind making those characters process these different traumas? Okay, those are really great and difficult questions. So I'll do my best. You know, I felt like Sarah is based on my own grandmother. My grandmother's name was Sarah. And her name was also Bordetsky. So I am also honoring her through my own name, that Lisa Bordetsky Williams. I was really thinking about with Sarah, how his, how she's running right into history, this Zlata. You know, and I guess I feel like one of the things about Sarah is that she's a very unexpected hero and that the more one gets to know Sarah, she's very quiet. She doesn't speak much. She's very alone in a way. She's just really alone. And in a sense, the granddaughter, Anna, really identifies with her and feels kind of a kindred spirit in in a way. But I felt like in writing about what she went through, losing her mother in such a brutal way, I mean, as I researched, I realized, wow, this is history. This is, she's, she's in the wrong place at the wrong time when history, you know, when war is happening. And of course, that's happening still all around the world. There are many Zlatas and many Sarahs in the world of all nationalities. And I tried to imagine that moment and what that loss was. And the more I did, the kind of the sadder it made me. You know, so then I go down to Anna and it was really hard. I felt like I wanted to, I didn't want the book to be, and I just, there's so many themes to this book. And I feel like the trauma is one part of it, but there's so many, there's love in the book. There's healing in the book. There's journey, there's discovery, there's adventure, there's intrigue, um, there's secrets, there's magic. And I would even say beauty, you know, the snow and the, and the countryside. And there's so many things. And I felt like, in a sense, everything, in some odd way, Anna is experiencing so much of, she's journeying through her grandmother's life in a way. And it was hard to write about, and I just write about it very briefly, her own experience with her stepfather, but those experiences make young women vulnerable to date rape. And it's not spoken about, but we all know that. That's the truth. When women don't feel protected in their own families, they're much more vulnerable. They don't, they're much more likely to find themselves in a very 
bad situation and it's not their fault. And I wrote that scene many, many different ways. And in one version, I had her get out and it didn't happen. I thought, man, you so sold out. You sold out. You have to, you know, tell the story of what happens to young women in every generation and have the guts. But I wanted to tell many other stories as well. So I'll be honest, some people have criticized me for that scene and said, but she, you know, you write enough about her response afterwards because she says, I'll deal with it when I get home. I can't think about it now. I got to go forward. And that is her way of dealing with it. Like I'm feeling a lot, but I'm not going under right now. You know, I can't go under with this. I'm just going to, I need to try and put it aside and experience this place. So you don't really know long-term how Anna's going to deal with it. But I, I did feel like it was important to get at this truth, these experiences the best I could. And I did rewrite it a million ways because I felt like it, it's it's a topic that really, you know, I, I just feel like young women just of every generation have to deal with this. And as far as we've come on many issues, we have not come far enough that women are still blamed. And I wanted to make a statement about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I really appreciate what you're saying about the different ways that people process trauma and, and kind of crafting those scenes. But I'm also hearing you when you say that, you know, trauma is one aspect of this book. And I think it was really interesting when you mentioned that Anna as a character is often sort of walking through Sarah's story as she's trying to discover herself. And in many ways, you know, Sarah and Anna's stories are are kind of inverses of each other sometimes, but they're very, very mirrored. And I was wondering what you really wanted the reader to take away about these questions of home and heritage and navigating identity, that kind of journey, that adventure aspect of it, which is equally as important and present in the novel as sort of the theme of trauma and how they process it are. Okay, great. I guess I feel like I, I want people to get that sense of the importance of taking a journey. That journey is tied up with self-identity and self-transformation. And, you know, there's a, there's a quote from Ludmila Ulitska, who wrote this, starts off my book. And she writes, it's fascinating to trace the trajectories of people destined to meet. And I, you know, start, I have that sort of at the beginning, and she wrote The Green Tent. It's an amazing book. And just that sense, I think all of us have that sense over time that the people who mean so much to us, it seems destined that we meet them. So, and yeah, and that that sense of longing for home, I did want to explore. I, I do feel like everyone in the book longs for Russia. And yet the title, Forget Russia, they can't forget it. Even Sarah, when she's an old woman with all the trauma she went through in that place, what does she do all day long? She's singing herself Russian love songs. That's what she does to keep herself sane in the nursing home. So that there's, you know, some, and maybe everyone has that place, that feeling about some place of origin, or maybe there's someone in your family who still is longing for the old country and... I just think that it's a very universal theme. And I was really interested also in this idea of the unexpected hero, because I do feel like probably most families have someone in their family that no one knows, but maybe they they save the family or because of the difficulty, 
of their own lives, everyone else's life is a lot easier. And that in some ways, that is the immigrant story. That first generation who comes here, it's a struggle. It's tough. It's hard. You know, and I also felt a tremendous appreciation for the that those difficulties make everyone else's life easier. And I think there's a debt of gratitude to that ancestor that I, I felt the more I learned about it. But I also feel like I'm interested in that idea of the unexpected hero because Sarah is. And, you know, she's just a quiet woman that most people don't pay all that much attention to. And yet she saves that family. And I'm, I'm sure most families have someone like that who need to be honored and need to be paid attention to and realize, wow, because of her, my life is a lot better than it could have been. Kind of on that note of the unexpected hero, one of the themes throughout this book seemed to be on Russian womanhood and what Russia does specifically to women. And to me, Sarah kind of embodies that. She embodies what we see in other Russian women just kind of throughout the book. Most of them are kind of humble or more quiet. And then they've also just dealt with this tremendous hardship and have to do it all. And I was wondering if you were cognizant of those themes and if they do tie together and why you crafted it that way. Okay, good. Well, some of those Russian women, especially, you know, are based on real women that I met, mothers of the friends I had, and very, very strong women. But it was very hard. They were expected to do everything, all the housework, the cooking. You know, people waited on lines for three hours a day to go for food, to buy food at at various, it wasn't just one supermarket. I remember when I walked into the supermarket for the first time in Moscow in, you know, 1980, I was like, holy crap, there's no food here. You know, it's like, where's the food? It was just cans. And, you know, you can just see So just to get the food was difficult. And I would say that the people I met, they didn't have much food, but whatever they had, they were so gracious and made me feel so welcomed and they're the most gracious hosts. But there wasn't a whole lot of food around and much worse outside of Moscow. Moscow probably had more than anywhere that I was there. But yeah, it was really hard for the women. And, you know, Yosef keeps saying all the women grow old, they grow old, you know, and they're all they're all old before their time. And, you know, Sarah is described as someone who always looked old, who was always old. And, you know, just the the difficulty, it was interesting, because the people I met, they'd say, you know, you think you want feminism, but feminism here just means the women do everything, you know, forget it. (laughs) I was like, it's not feminism. But it was just difficult. You know, recently I was able to have a kind of reunion with one of the women that the novel is based on. She lives in Israel and she read the book. And I said, so did I get it right? Did I get 1980s right in Moscow? She said, yeah, you totally got it right. And she said, I was so moved by the short, the sense of shortages. And yeah, it was, it was just, it was very difficult for the women and the expectation that women would have to do everything. It was very tough on them. I think that one of the things that so contributes to Sarah as kind of this hero, though, is the fact that even though historical circumstances and many times the men in her life are kind of pulling her this way and that way and, and you know, putting her in situations that are less than ideal, to put it lightly, you know, she's got this sense of identity and she's got this 
inner world and her own thoughts and her own feelings. And I'm thinking especially about the scene in which Leon tells her for the first time that, you know, he wants to go back to Russia and she feels like we should just, you know, stay here. And he's adamant about it. And he's trying to navigate caring for his wife in, even though he's been given terrible circumstances to do that in. But Sarah has this really deep and rich sense of herself. I think even through all of the stuff she's going through. And I feel like that to me felt like a really powerful statement about strength and hardship and mental health. And I really appreciated that aspect of her story as part of this almost like unlikely hero. Great. I think that's such a great observation, Maggie. And she is quiet and people could think, oh, she's weak, but she's very strong. And I I think that is a great insight of, you know, sometimes we just think of strong people who are kind of loud in their strength. <laughs> like They announce it so we know they're strong. But sometimes just that kind of very quiet strength and, you know, she just what she endured that there was this, I think it, it looks at strength in, in, in much more nuanced ways of what strength encompasses. And maybe uh, a lot of people would see it as weakness, but maybe it's really true strength. She does have a strong sense of herself and she, she does, she makes decisions that ultimately, you know, save the family without giving too much away of the book. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm so glad that you pointed that out. And uh, in a sense, the book does want to look at strength in, in a more nuanced way what it means to be a strong woman. I think we need to, you know, look at that in more nuanced ways. Speaking of that, speaking of just to kind of uh, really, really dig in a little bit deeper to that idea about Russian womanhood and then Sarah and her strength. And I'm formulating this on the spot, so please bear with me. But I feel like there is a lot of parallels between hardship for Russian women and materials. And then this idea of feminism meaning that you have to do everything and no one stands it doesn't seem like there's any place for russian women to be like hey we would like the men to do the chores now or we would like a more equal fair share of labor and i guess to me that all sort of connects to this idea of strength the way that you're depicting women in this novel and kind of the commentaries you just gave us now about what feminism at that time looked like in Russia? I I don't know. Maggie, do you want to help me out? Do you want to be the Harmony Whisperer? There's this very, I think, palpable sense of the ways in which people's lived circumstances and experiences, especially as related to material, and the space in which women are able to carve out for themselves to either stand up for themselves or just do things are sort of interrelated. And I think that that sort of relates to what you were saying earlier about kind of feminism, what is feminism, what isn't feminism. But I don't know if that's actually what you were getting at Harmony. So yeah, I'm not sure how the material relates entirely. But I guess this idea of feminism doesn't relate at all to material. And then also this idea of strength and and other places for womanhood strength does that does what Sarah has in terms of strength? Is that showcased in the other woman throughout your book? From your perspective? I think so. I think so. And again, I'm only, you know, I hesitate to make general statements about Russian women, or I can only, you know, I'm looking at 1980 and looking at the, you know, a slice of the people that Anna met that are, you know, based on many of the people that I met when I was there. So I do hesitate to make 
you know, overall general, but I would say that the women are pillars of strength, that they're, they're balancing quite a bit, which is wearing them down, but they're also kind of keeping everybody together, which women do tend to do. They're keeping everyone okay. And it's taking a lot out of them, but that's what they do. And I think that's what women do. They keep the, they're just, they're, the, they're really, the women seem like many of the women were really in a sense, the head of the families in terms of their emotional strength and nurturance. And yes, they had very difficult lives. I mean, I don't know how they worked. They, they had a weight on lines. I mean, I write about the lines in 1931 were very, very difficult, but that was going to be worse in 1931 than in 1980, but they just keep everything going. And so they are these pillars of strength, but they are getting worn down for sure. I think I figured out how material life relates. So do you think that the fact that there weren't a lot, a lot of resources in the Soviet Union during this time period, was that it seems like in the book that that is depicted as a larger hardship for women than it was for the men in the book? What is that? Is that true? I mean, I probably was hard for everybody. You know, I, I would say it's hard for everyone. I mean, I think I focus in on more of the women based on the the younger people that Anna meets, you know, focusing in on their parents. I, you know, I have a focus on, on the women, the women, uh, those women are very much head of the family. I think it was hard on everyone and nobody ever thought the Soviet Union would fall. It was really interesting when I was there in 1980 people and in, in the book, they just were like really afraid that when Brezhnev died, that there'd be like another Stalin would come to power and it would just get worse and worse. It, it never occurred to anyone ever that the Soviet Union would end, which I, you know, in retrospect is just really interesting. Yeah. And I, I think, I, I hope that, that answers in a, in a sense, you know, Sarah is a very, very, she has, she goes through enormous hardships, very much psychological, but who wouldn't going through what she did, but a lot of hardships. And I guess, you know, as I said, her husband, Leon is a more, he's physically strong. He's, you know, they wanted to make him a, a wrestler. He, he had lots of siblings. She's alone. She had no siblings. She has, she's got a half brother and a half sister when you know, she comes to America, you know, all these different kinds of things would just make people respond so differently. But I, you know, I think, I think, you know, everyone was dealing, you know, with a lot of hardship and, you know, <laughs> Yosef at one point, Anna says, she says, you know, there's hardship everywhere. And he goes, yeah, I know. I know everywhere there's hardship. You know, they like, to, they don't agree on anything politically, which is also, and yet they, they're very close. And they love each other, I think. Do you want to tell us what's next for you as a writer? Or can you tell us what's next for you as a writer? Well, I'm hoping to, you know, write. I, it's still in sort of germination form, another novel. But, I, you know, I also write poetry and essays. So, but I, I, I do have something I'm thinking about for another book. But it's probably a little early. I've so loved being here and speaking with both of you. Thank you. We loved having you. And I can tell people if you want to get the book uh, or be in touch with me, it's really easy by email, forgetrussia at gmail.com. So you can email me and the book is available, um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Bookshop, you know, it's very available. And I have a website, www.forgetrussia.com. 
And I hope my story is, you know, for everyone. That's that's what I really wanted it to be for all for everyone. And I so love being being interviewed by Rebel Girls Book Club. Wow, that's that's the best. I love the title. Thank you so much for coming on, Lisa. That was such a great interview. And I feel like I learned so much about about the book. Yeah, thank you. Before we go, are you reading anything interesting? We like to um, end our episodes with with talking about what people are reading. Yeah, I just read the book Plunder by Menachem Kaiser. Really fabulous book. Um, and uh, I'm reading Cast, which is unbelievable. Um, Isabel Wilkerson. And uh, I don't know. I, it's funny. I woke up today. Uh, I'm not. I'm, I've been thinking about Doctor Shivago all day. Don't tell me. Don't ask me why. So uh, those are. Some, well, I, I could tell you why, just because it's such a, it was a great inspiration for me for this book. And uh, yeah, those are uh, two books I just finished and uh, two, two great books. Cast by Isabel Wilkerson really just like changed my worldview. I feel like my copy is just soaked in ink from all of my annotations. It's so amazing. And I heard her speak and boy, what an, I mean, virtually um, at a library. And that was really just, I felt so honored to just be able to be there. She's, she's unbelievable. Fantastic. Harmony, do you want to share what you're reading? Uh, sure, but you might have to help me with authors. So I'm reading Honey Girl, who is by, I think her name is Morgan Robertson, Maggie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Morgan Robertson. And then I'm reading, um, I think it's called Female by Andrea Longchu, I think. I'll have to look that up. What are you reading, Maggie? I'm reading um, One Dark Throne by Kandara Blake. And then I'm also rereading The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. PhD application season is upon us. So we're, we're digging in. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I think that's all for us this week, Lisa. Thank you again so much for, for coming on. We so appreciate it. Um, and I hope you have a lovely rest of your day. You too. I really loved it. Thank you so much. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel dash girls dash book dash club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at Rebel Girls Book Club at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.